Takes from New Jersey. It's the SNL Nerds, the show where two comics from New Jersey nerd out about Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. And I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. John Trumbull, this is the 200th time I've asked you how you're doing, because, John Trumbull, this is our 200th episode. That is correct, uh, Darren. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. We They said uh, it wouldn't last. And... I, I think they said they should. it shouldn't last. Yes, that is what they said. That that's what they've said on many of our uh, Apple Podcast reviews. Uh, but uh, we're mm. keeping this podcast going in sheer defiance at this point. That's right. It's out of spite now that we do we keep on doing this podcast. Exactly, exactly. And because it's our two hundredth episode, we have a special guest. We absolutely. I'm, I'm special. I'm you special. <laughs> You're the most special, sir. The <laughs> most special. I'm I'm the guest of this particular broadcast. That's Absolutely. true. So that makes me very special, I would think. Ladies, oh, I? Well, here we go, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Like our our guest needs no introduction. Like we're so happy to have me, the former SNL cast member. He was there from 1982 to 1985, the lovely Dick Ebersol years, and he's had an amazing career post SNL. He's done so much amazing work, and we're here to talk. All about it with him today. Ladies and gentlemen, our 200th episode, boys and girls, clap your hands, stomp your feet, Mr. Gary Kroger. <laughs> now, thank you very much for that, but I do need an introduction. I do, uh, because back on SNL, the, my first year, the, the great Don Pardo, of which you're sort of, you know, emulating Don Pardo a bit there, right? With the, the big voice. He used to say, my picture would call Gary Kroger. And I'd go, Don, after the show, I'd say, Don, you said Kruger. No, Gary, I said Kroger. <laughs> so the next show, Gary Kruger. Don, you're saying Kruger. I'm not getting enough airtime. I at least need my name. Kroger, <laughs> long O, umlaut. Think Germanic, Don. So it took me a year to battle. If you look at those early shows, Gary Kruger. Oh, Don, may he rest in peace. Yeah, wow. All right. <laughs> Coming in hot. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I, I, I can understand the mistake, Kruger, Kroger. It's close enough, but I mean, come on. You shouldn't know the person's name. When well, you're well it's just one of those things that you at least want, you know, you want airtime, right? Right. But, but you, you struggle for airtime, especially my first year of struggling for airtime. You at least want your name. You want everybody to hear Gary Kroger. You know, it was like hearing Jane Curtin. Those names become legendary just because you heard them every Saturday live. Right. right. And yeah. for me, that was the most exciting part of the show was that cool jazz fusion and that rock and band and Paul Schaefer and all of that. You know, the sax comes in and then Don part live from New York. Fantastic. That that was the most thrilling thing to this day. I don't think that anything is more thrilling than that when that clock hit. What time did it hit? 1130. Mm -hmm. That must have been such an adrenaline rush. And you were, I mean, and this was like still relatively early days of the show. You were... It's funny because the show was legendary already. The first yeah. five years made... This show was was carved out in granite on Mount Rushmore, right? Saturday Night Live. And then there were a couple, two, three years, Gene Domanian, the first year of Dick Ebersol, that were mm -hmm. sort of a transitional period, but it was already an institution. So when I got there, I felt like, oh, this is an old, venerable show. But really, I was there season 
seven, right? right <laughs> I mean, right. that is really early in the run of it since we're looking at 40 plus now. Look, eyeballing 50. Yeah, yeah. Years. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. And, and maybe to just give people a little bit of context, uh, I'm going to read the names of some of your fellow cast members during your sure. era. Uh, which, as we said, it was during the Dick Ebersole years. You were there with Robin Duke, yes. Mary Gross, Brad Hall, Tim Kazarinski, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo. That's your first season. Yeah, right. Um, and then, then the next year, Jim Belushi comes in. Correct. As well. And then on your last season's show, Belushi is still there. And Billy Crystal, Christopher Guest, Rich Hall... Uh, Harry Shearer, Martin Short, and Pamela Stevenson come Correct. in. Correct. Right. That's and and Mary and Julia and I stayed right. with Jim. Yeah. Right. Wow. And that's, that is just a murderer's row of talent there. Well, it I really mean, was. You know, and we, I people probably know we have a little pre-show chat. We were talking about the fact that that period was very interesting because it was a non-Lorne period. Right. But Lorne Michaels, in his initial five years, had established the style, established that time in television established how the show was written, produced, read through, blocked. All of that was etched in stone by the time we got there. Mm -hmm. But it was still a different climate than the early days. And I, I wouldn't know how to compare the comedy necessarily, although every generation of Saturday Night Live has a different sense of humor. The show today is very different from what we did. In fact, we can talk about that later. But Eddie Murphy was turning into a superstar before our very eyes. So right. really, I started in the Eddie Murphy revolution. But then it transitioned into more of a Joe Piscopo show as Eddie lost interest. And we can talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. But then that last year where Billy and, and Marty and, and Chris only did it for a year and only wanted to do it for a year, that year stands out on its own. It's not like anything before it, and it's not like anything after it. Right. I felt like the characters and the style and the energy was still Saturday Night Live, but it it answered to no one. It just sort of sits there as this little jewel in the middle of it all, to me anyway. And and the very next year was, I believe, Lauren's first year back in 1985. Correct. So did you did you leave the show of your own volition, or did he just fire everybody? Well, there was there was no volition involved here because I I you know I don't ever want to sound indulgent like it I ever thought it should be about me, but I really started to get my sea legs then, and it took me that long as this neophyte to figure out okay this is how you do it. But I knew they were never going to fashion the show with me, and Lauren came back and he basically said so long as I get to start over completely. And again, I wasn't Billy Crystal. I wasn't, I wasn't Joe Piscopo for that matter. Right. Nothing was going to be anchored on me and, and he wasn't going to keep me in the cast as a, as a developed sideman. So he started over completely. So I had no choice, but to load up the truck and, and move to Beverly. Mm -hmm. um, but that first year, and I mean, no disrespect to Lauren, it's a hard show to start again. Yeah. And even with Robert Downey Jr. and the cast that he had, which was phenomenal. I mean, I can't even think of all the names. Anthony Michael Hall. It kind of sucked. 
Yeah, Ooh. yeah, that was a weird transitional year. It, it, it was, a, you know, that's not fair of me to say. In fact, it's completely unfair to say that it sucked because I know how difficult it is. But it didn't have chemistry. It, everybody seemed like a lone wolf out there. Yeah. Um, and you had um, Randy Quaid, for heaven's sakes. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and Joan Cusack. And, and Joan Cusack, all incredibly talented people. But it just didn't find itself because I remember watching the first episode and actually I watched the whole season and I thought, wow, they should have kept some of us old timers because we sort of knew the flavor. We sort of knew the routine. We could have provided some foundation, I thought. But even though that was fairly unsuccessful, I think that they all knew it because they all left. And then the show found the likes of guys like Dana Carvey and of course, Phil. And then it just started to become the institution that it is today. Right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but hey, let's let's start at the beginning with you, and you know, let's uh, we'll work our way through SNL and everything like that. Let's start. Let's start with you, sir, Mister Gary Mr. Kruger. Let's okay, like, uh, Mister Gary Kruger. <laughs> Gary Kruger. <laughs> oh God. Uh, well, I mean, so I, I mean, I guess I was interested in about like you know your your upbringing and just wondering about like how you sort of got involved in in theater and improv. Like, were you always that way as a kid, or like how did you sort of you know, well, how, how did you get the bug? I, I had the bug my entire life. I, I don't remember the bug not being in me. I, I liked Barney Fife. I liked Red mm. Skelton. I liked, uh, you know, the comedy acts that would come onto the Ed Sullivan show. I liked the stand-ups. I liked Jack Carter. I liked, you know, all of the almost vaudevillian performers that early television were putting on. It was more theatrical, and I just loved the way any of them, Dick Van Dyke, Red Skelton, Andy Griffith, Mm. just sort of um, embodied a character. The humor came out of the character itself, not the jokes. Mm -hmm. And so I just had a knack for that. I mean, I might have been four or five years old just thinking, well, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I mean, it's not that simple, but I never questioned what I wanted to do when I got to high school and I did plays and speech and all that. And I never questioned that I wanted to go on to a good dramatic school and I went to Northwestern. Um, And that's where I met the likes of Brad Hall, Paul Barras, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And really, once we all made eye contact and started doing what we thought was funny, you know, things, Monty Python was... That, that's what we follow, oh, was Monty mm-hmm. Python. But we liked narratives that had some substance to them. Now, if I'm sounding a little erudite, I apologize. But we never we were never about jokes. We were about a journey of, of a character arc that would maybe have some socio-political comment, content. And so we created theater called the Practical Theater, and we had an ensemble, and and I just named those who all went to Saturday Night Live, Mm -hmm. Um, and we're in Chicago in the late 70s, early 80s, just doing our thing, built a little theater right next door to Second City, very smart, by the way, if you're looking to start a theater, open one right next door to a successful one. So you, you, so you weren't officially affiliated with Second City, right? Well, Bernie Stalins saw our, our talent because we were out there. We were very physical. We were very cerebral at the same mm-hmm. time. And he thought, I can make some money off these kids. Cause, and, he, and our spillover audience, his spillover audience that he didn't have room for, go see these kids next door. They're cute. Um, <laughs> we became a big Chicago hit. 
And we started getting rave reviews. And then one thing leads to another. SNL hears about us. They scout us out. And then one, uh, after a Saturday show in late summer, 1982, Dick Ebersol and Bob Tischler said, uh, we want you to meet us at our hotel in Chicago tomorrow, Sunday. Okay. We go there. What do you guys think about being the new cast of SNL? <laughs> oh, wow. Just like that? It was. It really was. Now, Julia and I were thrilled. We were thrilled. I said to Julia, I think we just won the lottery. We were so excited. Her mm-hmm. husband, soon-to-be husband, not at that time. They were just dating, but Brad became her husband, and they were an item. And Paul Barras had just started this theater. It Really, it was taking off in Chicago, and they thought, do we want to do TV, or do we want to stay with our love and continue to do this theater? And they said, can you give us a couple of days to think about it? And I thought, oh, my God, they're going to screw the pooch on this. Well, they did come around to going, you know what? It's a good idea for national recognition, make a few bucks. And so we all went and did it. But it was just plucking these four neophytes out of Chicago into a medium that was foreign to us. You know, again, we were very theatrical. We were looking for live audience feedback, Um improvisation even, real improvisation. And television is a much more focused medium. If you're doing it off camera, you're not doing it. Um, And it's more joke intensive. If you're not getting the laughs, then you're failing. It's not as theatrical as what we were used to. And so we struggled, I would say, in that first year of SNL. In fact, Dick Ebersol took us aside and said, at some point he said, let me tell you why I hired you. Eddie Murphy's getting lazy. You know, 48 Hours is about to come out. He's already got all these movie offers. He was such a star on the show that he was losing interest. And they thought, let's bring in these guerrilla performers, much like the early days of Second City when they plucked John Belushi and Aykroyd and and all of that and um, Gilda out of the Mm -hmm. theater. He thought, this is what Eddie needs. Well, um, it made it very difficult for us. Because we weren't considered part of the cast. We were considered those guys threatening the cast in a way. So we mm-hmm. were not welcome persona, I would say, in the beginning, by the cast or the writers. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's the sad part of the story. The upside of the story is I was getting paid and I was living in New York, and now and again I'd be on TV. That doesn't and you, suck. And you were you were also like a really young guy at this point. You're like yeah, in your early 20s. Yeah, 23. Julia, I think, was like 20. And let's not forget, Eddie Murphy was 19. Yeah. This guy, this guy blew up at 18 years old. Bonkers. I used to look at him and marvel, how do you have the life experience in your teens to understand that character of that homeless person, to understand the mind of Bill Cosby, to go all the places he could go so brilliantly and so quickly? I, he was like this human sieve of emotional information. And he had so much confidence, which is the key to funny, really. Yeah. is just having the ability to not worry about editing yourself and just go with it. And I thought, I learned more from that young man than maybe anybody in my life. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. You you actually also, you have a blog called uh, Gary Has Issues, and you talk a little about those days on your yeah. blog. You, you talked about at one point you were, like, Eddie had an entourage that was blocking you from getting to yeah. your dressing room. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Well... 
Yeah, uh, my dressing room was the very end. Once upon a time, it was Garrett Morris's dressing room, and then I know it was Chris Farley's after me. It was at the very end, and Eddie had his right next to mine, mm-hmm. and he had an entourage, and he was at this point wearing chainmail. He called it his celebrity clothes, and he would have security. And I remember I had a quick change once, and I had to explain to Eddie's people that I was in the show, and I wasn't just trying to bust through to get Eddie's autograph. So yeah, it was uh it presented a challenge. That's hilarious. That's wow. That is insane. I love that. So I mean, when when you were at the show, who were who were some of your favorite hosts to work with? I know that like I mean, of course, a lot of people come through there in three years. I know you ho- uh Drew Barrymore hosted it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there I never met a host I didn't like. Yeah. I didn't think they were all great. Mm-hmm. Um I one of the best potential host was Michael Keaton, but that particular show, we just screwed the pooch on it. It just wasn't any good. Somehow we didn't use him appropriately, but there couldn't have been a nicer guy looking to work hard. You know, he was willing to stay up till the next morning and write sketches and we just didn't deliver a very good show. My personal favorite was, I don't know, about four shows in my first season with Howard Hessman because Howard came from what would be the compass players Mm -hmm. and he was a bona fide improviser. And A true improviser, in my view, isn't someone quick with a joke. It's someone quick with a character, quick to understand a real person that's different from themselves and able to make decisions in that character. So Howard could play with anything, anything. Mm -hmm. And I did a couple of really nice sketches with him, uh, one that I co-wrote where I came home from college. And it was a very theatrical piece. Oh, I watched this one. This was Dad it's, on Straight. Right. Yes. And I come home and you assume that I, I'm going to say that I'm gay and, and terrify, you know, upset my father. But instead, I tell him that I'm straight and that I like girls. And now you realize that I was raised by a, a gay father and he wished that his son was gay. And we weren't trying to make fun of homosexuality. We were actually trying to say, isn't it ridiculous that we put this 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 give this struggle to people to simply be who they are it was mm-hmm. to try to illuminate the hypocrisy the 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 ridiculousness of of it being a difficult thing to say hey i'm gay right or, or no. here's who i am so we turned the tables on that and the audience was so uncomfortable and then when i said dad i'm straight i like girls i i'm a heterosexual and howard starts to cry you could just feel the audience well with relief and laughter. Yeah. And to me, because Howard played it so real, and I was playing it very real, that was true theatrical comedy. So for me, Howard Hessman just delivered in every way that I ever could have hoped. Um, Christopher Reeve was a wonderfully nice guy, and we became friends and went out to dinner. And I can remember telling Christopher Reeve, I said, hey, and just the two of us out to dinner, me and Superman, right? I was a Superman freak as a little kid in second grade. I I wore my Superman suit to school. This is a true story. And I'm telling Chris this. And he goes, oh, that's so incredible. But it's not incredible, Chris, because I was kind of picked on. And I thought, well, you know, if I unbutton my shirt a little bit, some of the bullies might see the S and think, holy shit, Kroger <laughs> is Superboy, right? I mean, in a second grade grader's mind, that's right. credible. Yeah. Let's not pick on him. He could kill us, right? right. <laughs> but my cape would bunch up in my pants. 
And Julie Nielsen, this was so traumatic, I remember to this day who it was. Julie Nielsen said, Gary Kroger's wearing a diaper. Oh. oh. To go from the boy of steel to the boy of, you know, diapers was was pretty traumatic. So I told Chris the story, and I heard him on a talk show, a major talk show, tell the story as if it had happened to him. (gasps) What? Oh, wow. <laughs> and I cast no dispersion on Chris, wonderful guy. And I know how difficult it is. You do a talk show and you're desperate for a story. So he told mine, right? And I like forgave him for it. But the audience went, oh, that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so I lost the impact of my own story in my life. Oh, gosh. So I give that little nugget to you two. To wow. know that I was Superboy in the diapers. Thank you, Superboy. We thank you for your service. <laughs> well, and, I'm, I'm, and your poopy pants. <laughs> I'm glad that he was a nice guy outside of that because I look. I'm I'm a huge uh, comic book nerd myself. Christopher Reeve was one of my personal heroes before yeah, the yeah. accident because you know, when I, I was six, I got to see him embody Superman yeah. on screen, yeah. and it. it it really touches me so much to know that he was a good person. Well, he, he not only was a good, yeah, he took my little panel story, which I, look, I don't really care. It gives me the opportunity to tell the story. You wouldn't have cared about that story if I didn't have Chris Reeve attached to it. Right? <laughs> so, so he gave me that, but he truly, why would Christopher Reeve, Superman, and many other great movies go out to dinner with little Gary from Iowa? He was just a genuine guy who just wanted to, have friends and make conversation. A wonderful man. A wonderful man. Right. And and that's that's a really great sketch as well. It's really it's good. A, if you haven't oh, seen that sketch, <laughs> definitely look it up because it's it's the final auditions for Superman the movie, and it's it's Gary and uh, uh, Rich Hall. Yeah, yes. auditioning for and and Chris Reeve auditioning yeah. for Superman, and yeah. of course Chris really had superpowers and could catch a bullet with his teeth. Right. The reason I'm personally proud of that is the writers wrote it, and I think it was Nate Herman, um, Elliot Wald, Andy Kurtzman, and I could be wrong. So if the real writers going, it was me, it was me. I apologize, but they didn't give us any parameters in terms of how we would do the character. So I made the choice to play this pompous, needs time to prepare, and then delivers in a somewhat American Shakespearean style, you know, Lois, right. look look out there, Krypton, you know, um, and the arrogance. And then they allowed me to do my own sort of pratfall into the, when I'm actually killed by a bullet. <laughs> so I was personally proud of that because I was able to use my own brushstroke to, and so did everybody else to make it a wonderful scene. Julia playing the uh, casting director from mm-hmm. Long Island was hysterical. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you have a nice little grace note in that where, like, right after you give your read, you you give yourself a little yes, yeah. like. You, <laughs> I, I am nailing this. <laughs> right. And I remember I only did that in the dress rehearsal and it got such a laugh. I thought, okay, that goes into the air show. Right. Yeah. And I also like, I, I, I another thing I really liked about that sketch was uh, when um, you get shot by um, Richard Donner, who you know, played right. by uh, J- Jim Belushi, like you go flying back into all these like folding chairs. I, I was like, wow, he's yeah. like for a minute. I was like, is he, is Gary okay? Like, I didn't know you yeah. had like, you're that physical you, with your comedy sometimes. You just gave me goosebumps and let me tell you why, sir. Okay. Because I, 
we did learn in the practical theater. I, I said we like to be our sketches to be about something, but we also liked them to be physical. We like to throw each other around, take a pratfall, fall off the stage. You know, in the Monty Python vein, very intelligent material and also very goofy, silly, and physical, right? Right. So we learn to fall and things. And I thought this is going to be a lot more impactful if I put folding chairs over here, which are going to clank and make a terrible noise. So if you look at it, I don't take that much of a fall, but it sounds so dramatic. And obviously, to your point, it worked. It's like, oh, my God, this guy hurt himself. So I'm very proud of that. <laughs> okay. And, and then, of course, you have to stay still for the rest, for of, the rest of the sketch. Yeah. And there's like 10 more minutes. I yeah. know. I know. It's, it's not a short sketch, but I mean, no, it's a very funny sketch. It's... Well, those are my favorite moments. <laughs> that, that's a great one. Like another moment that I think is is very notable when I I actually was researching for the show, I, I found a great YouTube playlist of stuff you'd done on the show, and you were actually the guy on the night that SNL did the vote about whether or not to keep Andy, Andy Kaufman, Kaufman on the show. Yeah, you were the guy who introduced that. And yeah, that, and you know what? I I regret it. Yeah, oh, I. Wow. I, I don't, I, I regret it because I loved Andy Kaufman mm -hmm. and I thought the whole thing was supposed to be a sketch. I thought mm -hmm. the whole thing was set up and phony. And so I overplayed it going, you know, the way I said it was like, Hey folks, this is stupid. It's, it's a joke. I didn't play it for real. And I look at it and I, I sort of cringe when I see how I presented the information. Cause I found out later he was genuinely hurt. It was a real vote, and he was voted off the show, which I guess, of course, he didn't think would happen. And I felt like I was part of something that hurt one of the great comedians of our time. I mean, I wasn't responsible for it, but I just, I thought it was all a gag. Yeah. Right. yeah. I thought it was, and I delivered it like a gag. And so I'm just very uncomfortable with that. Um, the whole idea is like, why? Why? Why did we even do that? And it's interesting because, like, Andy wasn't even there in the studio that no. night, was he? No, no, no. You know, in fact, I don't really recall. I just remember hearing Andy's hurt. He mm -hmm. and you know, he didn't live. A, I mean, it's not why he died, of course, but right. he wasn't with us much longer after that. And I thought, well, that was a sad last chapter, yeah. um, because I would see him in the hallways. And here's another one of those people. Look, and I'll say this over and over. But the truth is I'm a humble, sincere guy from Iowa. And so when I'm in the presence of these people, people that I've idolized, Ringo Starr, mm. Christopher Reeve, Andy Kaufman, Robin Williams, I'm standing there going, they know my name? I mean, I couldn't get mm -hmm. over it. And I would see Andy, just this shy guy out there, go, what did you think? Was that funny, what I did? You know, insecure, mm -hmm. and uh, you know that—that that was my only impression of Andy. Was this genuine, sweet presence on Earth? Um, right. I don't have a end of this story really, right. where I wrap it up in a little bow. Except that you know, I was privileged to meet him. It, I feel bad that the way we treated him on SNL was a joke that didn't work out in his favor. Yeah. Well, I, I think an interesting sort of postscript to that story is that moment uh, of you saying, oh, we're going to have these two 900 numbers to vote whether Andy will be on the show or not. 
that was recreated in the Milos Forman film. Yeah, Man yeah. Moon. And but it's Lorne Michaels playing himself, and he wasn't right. even with the show then. So no, he was Lorne not. Michaels is playing no. you in a movie. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, and he didn't even wear the ugly sweater they put me in. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah there's right. no real. It, that was kind of bizarre. It's like well, there's is. no reason not to play it for reality as opposed to taking that artistic license to change the truth but you know is what it is it's just such a weird moment because it's in a weird way it's like lauren taking responsibility for something he had he had nothing to do with nor would i think he would have done that so yeah that's odd i mean maybe they offered him a lot of money i guess so more than he offered the beatles oh Absolutely. Yeah. Are their salaries that high? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I mean, I'd like to talk about. Well, there's two sketches that you did that I really, really enjoyed. That I like to get you know talk to you about. Like uh, as we, I was rewatching all your uh, old sketches on YouTube to prepare for this interview. One I really loved uh, that cold open you did, where that end that ends with you uh, getting drunk and. Uh, committing suicide almost <laughs> oh, yeah I just oh, watched it this that, morning. so dark <laughs> so very so, dark I, I, let me tell you about it so it, it, obviously uh i i seem to recall i'm at my locker and tim comes and said i was talking to your parents and i and i said my parents are in town and tim said yeah they didn't tell you i mean all these things they cut the uh, a sketch that i was in Mm-hmm. Apparently, my family came to visit. They didn't say hi. We were making fun of the fact that, you know, I didn't get enough airtime. Everybody liked me, but, you know, Kroger just isn't finding his way. So it was a way to highlight that and make a joke out of it, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm so down that I pull out a gun and fire it. And then, of course, it says live from New York at Saturday night, right? Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, the way you play it is like so, it's like it's so heartbreaking. <laughs> Bruce Dern was the host, right? right. And I'm doing it in, in rehearsal, and I'm trying to keep it light because it's suicide to start the show. Yeah. I'm trying to keep it light, so I'm making it jokey, and I'm being broad with it, right? right and right. Bruce Dern said, Gary, what you're doing isn't working. It's not funny. It's only funny if it's real. Wow. And I go, really? Mm. It's Bruce Dern telling me this. So before air, I thought... Okay, it's got to be real. I've got to be really sad. So that's the way I did it. I mean, maybe he was right. We're talking about it now. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's true. It's just, but, it's, but it was dark. It was dark. It's more impactful. And also, well, they. I liked how Tim sort of lightened up the mood a little bit because, like, when he walks into the locker room and he sees you're, like, very despondent and down and drunk, and he walks in and he's like, hey, Gary, what are you doing here? You came to watch the show or something? which we i i loved making fun of that reality of mine in the show but again i'll never forget bruce stern saying they've got to believe you really want to kill yourself gary and you can hear bruce stern saying that because he's that kind of intense actor right yeah yeah no he's you got to believe you want to kill yourself gary that's that's the key to this scene okay okay. one of the great actors of our time is telling me to do it there we go just even you saying it the way he would say it terrifies <laughs> yeah, me. Right. I know. Like, just, just hair standing up on my arm. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's a fantastic sketch. And the other fantastic sketch we got to talk about, Needleman the Dentist. I mean, yeah. you, you had mentioned this to us in, um, in our little Facebook chat. And I, you know, I, I'm ashamed to admit I wasn't super familiar with it. So I like, I rewatched it. You're on forgiven. YouTube. Thank you, sir. <laughs> so I rewatched it on YouTube. 
And my God, is it fantastic. I, it, <laughs> I really you love that show. That has only run in its original airing and when that show reran. And I think it made an early best of, you know, back uh -huh. when they were best ofs included that era, right? So it's only been on three major broadcasts outside of reruns or getting the package or buying, you know, what of the seasons. Right. So it's had very little airtime. But now we're 35 years after the fact or whatever it is, people still come up to me or <laughs> when I met my wife mm -hmm. seven years ago, she told her friend she's going out with Gary Kroger and she said, Needleman, the dentist? You're <laughs> Needleman? Yeah. So it had an impact because it was a time, it was a, it was a good topic. Video dating was just starting to explode. And it's back when you went into a place and they put in VHS cassettes, right? right and you have right. these guys going, yeah, I'm the kind of guy that likes to ride horseback, you know, with only my chaps and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so some writers had this idea. Uh, again, I think it was Kurtzman Wald and, um, and, and, um, and Herman. And that this guy explodes into this multi, um, faceted presentation. Well, you know what it is. Right, right. And they said, Kroger, here's $30,000. You're going to go to this place across the river in New York and make it great. There's some dancing girls. We had a great director who did lots of um, MTV videos at the time. Mm. And we spent a day concocting the moves and the dancing. I went into a studio record plant where John Lennon had done his recording. And... Wow. Um, laid down these tracks in sort of a Springsteen-esque way, mm -hmm. and it came together, and it was really quite spectacular. Yeah. And one of those dancers is B.B. Newworth. Oh, really? Oh, really? She, she was nobody. Her. She was a Broadway dancer. She hadn't done anything. But if you look at it, you'll know which one is her now that you know. Yeah. Oh, B.B. Wow. Newworth. I rewatch that. That's amazing. I got to, I got to see B.B. Uh, Newworth on Broadway when she was in that revival, or not the revival, the, the Adams Family musical. Oh, yeah. Lane. Well, she's fantastic. And you, yeah. I remember her having a tremendous personality and very outgoing and, and forward, you know, just in terms of mm -hmm. engaging with people. But again, she hadn't anything to her credit or she wouldn't be doing the Needleman video. Yeah, yeah. This was like before Cheers. and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, guys, if you haven't seen The Needleman, The Dentist, I highly recommend you check it out. Because it's like yeah. you said, Gary, it starts off as this video dating type of video with you're playing this sort of nerdy dentist person, you know, <laughs> man, looking for love. And then it sort of segues and the video becomes like a huge music video where yeah. there's like background dancers. At one point, you're mm -hmm. in like a, like a bedazzled Speedo. <laughs> At one point throughout the whole thing, I'm in a I'm in a, a, a speedo that with a giant tooth and sequins all over it and a cape, um, and all of the lyrics, of course, were double entendre. Let yeah. me fill you with every inch of this drill. You know, I mean, it was real adolescent, you know, right. sexual humor, but it, you know. People remember it. Yeah, and I know you've had other drills in your mouth. You said, and <laughs> right. you, you had this one line you put in where you said, "Like I liked Barry Manilow before he went commercial." Went commercial. <laughs> like, I yeah, like Streisand, Radio Shack. I mean, yeah, right. hey, nerd SNL nerds. He was a genuine mm -hmm. nerd. Yeah, and like, and the way the the way the video even ends with like the little um, MTV Disclaimer. music video. 
Like, uh, the disclaimer is hilarious. We in no way wish to promote uh, casual dental hygiene or something like that. (laughs) A la Thriller, I seem to recall, which was, of course, you know, the big video at the time. Yeah, and, exactly. and it's a real, it's a real catchy song too. That that's my name like, is Needleman. I'm an oral surgeon. I'm 31. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's I like and I'm tired of being a virgin. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Dave Spinoza. If mm-hmm. if those out there know are into music, Dave Spinoza is one of the greatest session people ever in history. Played on John Lennon's albums. He played the guitar. He plays the guitar on Needleman. Oh, wow. you know, that, that was the magic of being an SNL. You're in this community of people. You don't know who you're going to plug into. Look at the SNL band. Look at the people who come through. I was the first person ever to imitate Paul Schaefer, which I consider belongs in the World Book Encyclopedia. But these are the people I get to rub shoulders with. I'm, I'm in the bathroom at 30 Rock, and a guy comes in. It's David Letterman, and he's peeing next to me. And he said, hey, Gary. And I'm thinking, <laughs> David Letterman is looking at my penis and knows my name. <laughs> the weird thing is he said, hey, Gary, just from looking at your penis. That seems like that's you, you know what? You get the gold star for this whole interview yeah. right there. That is, that's the moment. That's... Well played, John. Well played. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Well, thank you. I, I, I once had the honor of peeing next to Gil Gerard, and it took all that I I could muster to not go beady, beady, beady. But uh, I peed next to, um, oh, I can't, wait, um, it, it'll come back to me. Oh. Okay. I never All peed right. next to anybody famous. Darn. Really? No. Here, what the hell are you doing with your life? I don't Matt, know. What, what, remember what I'm talking about. Brad and Julia and I went to Elaine's because we're living in New York. We're going to Elaine's. Uh, Who's there? Of course, Woody Allen is there. And uh, he's there with Mia Farrow back in the days when they all got along, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Everybody's at Elaine's. Gregory Peck is at Elaine's. And Gregory Peck went into the men's room and I said to Brad, I have to go. I have just (laughs) so that I can say that I saw Gregory Peck's pecker. And I, (laughs) I had to live the pun. So I went in there, I stood at the urinal next to Gregory Peck, and I peeked at his pecker. Wow. I think we have we have a poem. How many pe- peeps at a beer peck, pecker, pe- whatever? <laughs> there, there's a limerick in there somewhere. There's a yeah, limerick so, in there somewhere. Wow. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I mean, it sounds like you saw like so many people. I mean, also, was this your... Um, and so many penises. And penises. Yeah. So many penises. Like, well, but we digress. Yeah. But I mean, well, uh, when you got the job and you moved to New York, was that your first time ever in New York? I you mean... No. Uh, no, I, you know, I went to Northwestern and so as people, friends would graduate, they would get into shows and things and we'd make pilgrimages and stay in flee. <laughs> so in two years, three years before I got to SNL, I went to New York by myself to see a friend in Sugar Babies, I think. Mm. And I had no money. I'm a college kid. So I stayed at the New York Times Hotel no longer exists. I thought this sounds like a major hotel. No, the New York Times Hotel is a transient hotel basically for hookers. And it was right now, you could hear the printing presses all night and it was like 15 bucks a night, but okay, I'm a poor college kid. So I'm having trouble sleeping. And so I thought, oh, it's an old lumpy mattress. So I flipped it over. It was bloodstained, right? Oh, Yeah. So I went downstairs and I said, hey, my mattress is like red and stained. Oh, a prostitute was beheaded in that room. Oh, is that the worst story you've ever heard? Oh Jesus my Christ. God. 
Yeah, yeah. And they just flipped the mattress. I mean, I mean no disrespect to this person who never learned who it was or anything like that. But that's what they told me. Oh, yeah, a prostitute was beheaded. But they had no place to sleep. So I guess I flipped the mattress mattress back over and, you know. So, yeah, I've been in New York before. That's the end of that story. New York, New York. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. I, I I got nothing, John. What do you got? Okay, well, th- there is one thing um, I wanted to ask you about. Since you were you were coming on, I decided to look up in the James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales's great oral history Saturday Night Live. Oh yeah, Life yeah. Work. I I looked up your name in the book to see like if you were one of the people interviewed for the book or if you your name came up in any other anecdotes, and I didn't find any quotes from you, so I guess they didn't speak to you for whatever reason. I think they did. I think they just didn't use anything. Oh, well, that's... Because I I mean, I know I'm in a few pictures here and there. In fact, I have... I I, I signed one to myself. It's Uh over on the coffee table somewhere. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, again, at at that time, they were looking for the chestnuts from Eddie and Joe and and Billy. Um, Yeah, I, 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 I do remember talking to them. Okay. okay. Well, I mean, there, there is a thing in there, an anecdote that you're involved in. David Sheffield tells a story about yeah. he's, he's saying like what a what a jerk Robert Blake was when he right. posted. Ooh. And he he talks about you pitching a sketch to him called Breezy Philosopher. And why don't yeah. why don't you tell the story from there? Well, I don't know that Dave got all the facts right. I mean, right. I don't know that it was. I remember having this sketch that kind of made fun of his Beretta character. Only he was a college professor, and his cockatoo could quote Shakespeare, and, and uh-huh. his cockatoo had all the information. I know that doesn't sound particularly funny, but it was it, it was just this kind of sketch that made fun of his street character and having this erudite, intelligent cockatoo. Um, but he hated it. He read it, and he hated it. And I seem to recall he wiped his ass with it and then threw it at me. And uh-huh. it hit me in the face. But oh. here's the thing. Holy it didn't God. hurt my feelings. I thought, oh, well, you know, he didn't like the sketch. I mean, yeah. it, it honestly didn't hurt my feelings at all. I, I just kind of figured, I, I guess I'm in the big leagues now because, <laughs> you know, they don't pull any punches. Um, but I'm guessing that to people, sweet people like David Sheffield, thinking, oh, well, Kroger didn't deserve that. Uh-huh. Um you know, it, it sort of stood out, and I, the consensus was, "Well, what an asshole! We'll never have him back to the show." But I hope it wasn't just on account of me. I think that he was difficult all down the line, you know, throughout right. the week, and I don't think it was a particularly good show. Um, the breezy philosopher, and, you know, that could have been it too. Uh-huh. I don't remember. You know, you write so many things, and you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall, and if it doesn't stick, you forget it quickly. Yes. Okay. You know, so. Whatever the sketch was, I'm not sure. And I don't think I even wrote it by myself, but I think I took the brunt of the, the hit for how much he I hated mean, it. It's too bad that there's there's never been any other indication that Robert Blake was a bad person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he, he, well, you know, I, I've had a bird's eye view. I've had a front row seat in, in my modest way to many, many things. I'm at a restaurant called uh, Vitello's in Sherman Oaks. Oh, 25 years ago. Oh. And I'm sitting next to Robert Blake and his wife, and I'm forgetting her name right now. Hmm. Um, and he, we said hi from SNL. Wait, would, would, hey. this, would this have been Bonnie Lee? Yes, this is Bonnie. Okay. okay. And um, it, they left. And then he came back 
saying something like, I forgot my gun. Okay, weird. So I left with my date. We walked right by all of the car and all of that where she was found, right? But we didn't know anything. We didn't know anything. We saw Robert Blake was there. He came back for his gun. We went home. The next day, the area is taped off with police tape. The story's hitting the news that that we walked by all of it. Oh, we were there. I was in the next booth to Robert Blake the night he allegedly murdered his wife. Holy. So that was the night. Oh, my God. Yeah, the night. We wow. said, said hi to him. Wow. wow. I, I had nothing wow. to offer in the police report. We just walked home. Oh, you know, I remember there being a car next to a big dumpster. And then when you saw all the pictures in the paper and the news and stuff, hey, that's the car next to the dumpster that we walked by. Yeah. Holy moly. Wow. <laughs> yes. And again, I don't know what validity that gives me in the world of show business, but I, you know, when you're there, you get to see lots of things, you know, yeah. you, 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 you know, I sat with Robin Williams when he did the show and oh, wow. this is apropos of nothing, not apropos to what we were talking about, but I was told by Dick Ebersole, I said, hey, Kroger, keep an eye on Robin, because we just don't want him wandering around outside or getting lost or going to the park and just going off on a tangent. You know, let, we, we need him for the show and we need to focus. So I was his handler, right? Oh, okay. And we're sitting in the green room upstairs where the VIPs gather. And Robin is sitting silently on the couch, just collecting his energy. All of these people coming to see Robin Williams didn't see him. He was invisible because he wasn't projecting anything. Wow. It was just a guy on the couch. The room filled, and suddenly he decided to turn on and be Robin Williams. Oh, ah, hey, and he turns it, and everybody screams their approval and recognition. So I saw his ability to just absorb everything into almost a nothing personality and then flick a switch and become this genius. Wow. And I thought, what an interesting thing that I got to see about this complex, beloved, incredibly talented, um, tragic, ultimately, human being. Holy moly, wow. Yeah, yeah that, that reminds me of, there's like some famous story of someone tells about seeing Marilyn Monroe, and I think they were like somewhere out in public, and she was just being very unassuming sort of like more Norma Jean than Marilyn yeah. Monroe. And then at one point she said, do you want me to become her? And yeah. then she just sort of turned it on. And then people are like flocking to her. Yeah. It's yeah. It, in every case, even Robin Williams, it's a character. Yes, yeah. that character is born from them, but it is a character that they create that becomes this celebrity. So it's wow. really fascinating. And and Robert Blake was this murderer who becomes a, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> who became a private detective with a <laughs> private detective with, with the quote Shakespeare, apparently. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I mean, you, you have a, a ton of stories, sir. This is fantastic. I have more if we have the time, but some other uh, time, you know, have me back. Well, there are people with more stories than me, but. Yeah, you know, I've been paying attention my whole life, and I've I've been able to have a a really interesting, often front row seat to many many things and many yeah. really interesting people. You, you know, uh, another very famous moment of yours on the show that I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention <laughs> is you playing uh, Donny Osmond off opposite <laughs> Julia Louis Dreyfus's Marie Osmond. <laughs> yeah, where you're singing "Blue Christmas." 
There'll be so blue <laughs> Christmas without you. Well, it was the it was the Gumby Christmas, and I think it might have right. been our one of our early shows, if not the first show. Right. Um, and we are Donnie and Marie, and it's Donnie and Marie, you know, right. Gumby introduced us, uh, Gumby Christmas, and. It was a one joke premise, obviously. Mm -hmm. We're singing a song together. We're singing a little duet. We start to look at each other. We get a little closer and then we're making out. And and the audience laughs and Eddie ad-libbed, is that what you call going Hawaiian? You know, whatever. (laughs) And then it's over. Well, it got such a laugh that they decided, let's do it again. (laughs) And this time um, we made out again. I don't remember what the occasion was. It was special. And then they said, let's do it again. And now it was St. Patty's Day, and we come out, and Maria's pregnant. Oh, oh my. Wow. Yeah, talk about it. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I mean, did, uh, I mean the, did the Osmonds ever reach out to you, be like, hey, why are you making these jokes, these incest jokes about me and my my sister uh, not not that i'm aware of although I, I think i think they would today because there's certain more ways for this to travel and it would probably be a tiktok video and a youtube video right, um right. It didn't at the time we had a very small world in a way but i remember thinking wow this isn't even clever it's just one joke but i guess that's the way this is done you know it's not the story arc that i like right it got laughs and it's still people still talk about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is a, a very funny, very unexpected moment, at least for that. First I, I was told, you know, I did Walter Mondale several times and right. especially after he lost and I had some fun with him, but I treated him very sympathetically because I loved Walter Mondale and he just, you know, was the wrong guy at the, at the right time. I just wasn't mm-hmm. able to put it together. And a woman on the ticket just wasn't a good idea back then. Right. And so I would come out and I would do Walter. And I did hear, hear that uh, Eleanor, may she rest in peace, who was a wonderful human being, uh, didn't like it. Didn't oh. like me making fun of her dad. And I never thought that I was making fun of him. I was making fun of what happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that to me was a crucial difference. But yeah, I, I did. It, it, it saddened me to think that I hurt anybody's feelings, especially with an yeah. imitation. Right, right. I, I can get that. I can get. That. But it wouldn't have bothered me at all if Donny Osmond hated that I was making out with his, his <laughs> sister. I mean, that's the dream is to have yeah. a blood feud with Donny right. Osmond. That's right. The, that's- if he was angry at me, that would sort of be a feather. And I don't dislike him. But mm-hmm. it's like, you know, if you're going to be peaches and cream and, and bubble gum and milk, you know, and that's going to be your image, then you kind of deserve to have a few arrows thrown at it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you got to, yeah, and you got to make out with uh, his, his uh, Julie Lee Dreyfus. And you also got to make out with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis as uh, El Dorco. The El Dorco <laughs> sketch, which I remember. And, uh, El Dorco, I liked very much because this was a character sort of based on real things. And, and he was a sad fellow that ultimately wins, right? He wins every time. He gets to make out with the pretty girl. And yes, I made out with Jamie Lee Curtis. Wow. Yeah, I actually okay. was going to ask you, like, if that was based on somebody you knew or maybe you yourself. Because the, I did notice that they mentioned Both. that. They, they did mention that he, that El Dorco was from... Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I was like, "Oh, yes. Gary's from there." I wonder- uh, well, there, there were. You know, I, I was always look. You, you can add some violins here, right? Mm-hmm. I, I was always, in my entire life, a champion of sympathetic to people who were picked on, who were bullied. I was mm-hmm. a little bit myself, so I just felt like this is something that I can't allow. Mm-hmm. So the character was based on some events and things that happened to me, or it happened to uh, some people that I knew, but it was. You know, a cartoonish character, but in the vein of Barney Fife, the volume was just turned up a little bit. 
But I had to have those characters win. But one of the things Jamie Lee Curtis did, she improvised it. She took off my glasses to give me a really good kiss. And you can see this in the shot. And so when she took them off, I thought to myself, well, I have to look like I'm blind without my glasses. So I fluttered my eyes and, and I crossed them a little bit. And it really looked like somebody is blind without their glasses, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, watch True Lies sometime. And her character, the glasses come off and she does that. And she told me she got that from me. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of an oh wow, right? That's a little tiny footnote in the in the in in Hollywood lore of that moment when Jamie Lee Curtis's glasses are taken off, her eyes cross and they flutter. She said she picked that up from me. That's that's awesome. You have like a little bit of influence. <laughs> yeah, in your yes, I have that little footnote so long as there are shows like this that allow me to you know boast of such things. <laughs> well, I, you've also had a really interesting. Uh, post SNL career. Um, yes. Like just this morning, I rewatched a TV movie that you did in 1990 called Archie to Riverdale and back again, <laughs> where you got to play Reggie Mantle Reggie. All, all grown up. He's kind of an asshole movie. too, wasn't I? Yeah. You, you kind of were, you were like, you were, you owned the, the gym in town in Riverdale and you're trying to drive Pops's soda yeah. pop shop out of business. Yeah. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur and everybody, you know, everybody hates me because I, I'm trying to make a buck and, and I don't care about, you know, all the sentimentality and stuff. But there's a story behind this that you'll find interesting. Um, they asked me to come in for Archie and they said, well, you're not an Archie type at all. Even if we dye your hair red, it's not going to work. Why don't you read for Reggie? And uh-huh. because I think, um, it was so against type for me because I always went in for nice guys mm-hmm. that the way I did it, I think they found to be, wow, great. You're hired. And it was five days of shooting at more money than I've ever made in five days in my life. Oh, so I said, wow. I'm making it. I'm doing it. The very next day I get a call from Seinfeld um, to come in an audition for, for, um, for Larry, for a character. And I said, well, I can't. Um, I can't because I had just accepted this thing and it would be the same week. And Seinfeld at the time was just a show. Yes, it was my friends, but it was like number 70. It wasn't the hit yet. And right. I thought it would be in very bad faith to go and audition. And what if they wanted me? And I said, no, I'm going for the money because Archie was a back-end pilot as well. It was right. a logical decision that I made. Yeah, of course. Well, Larry saw it as me saying no to a Seinfeld and even though we were very good friends at SNL, uh, if you do that to Larry, he holds a grudge. <laughs> and oh, wow. So, yeah. And so I was never asked to audition again for Seinfeld. And then, of course, became probably the most popular show in television history. Now, all of that, the hatchets were buried. The water went under the bridge. He gave me a, a Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, several years ago. Nice. Um, and and I brought up the Seinfeld, and he had no recollection of <laughs> it at all, of course. But but again, you know, I, I had an opportunity. If the gods of careers had said, Gary, do the Seinfeld, you're going to be part of television history. You'll be part of water cooler lore till the end of time and residual checks up the wazoo. But that didn't happen. Yeah. I, I took Reggie, the money, and ran. Wow. And, and it's, it's a very interesting pilot. Like... A young Lauren Holly is also in it. Yes, a young Lauren Holly, and she was just starting. Karen Copens uh, had done mm-hmm. a few things. Um, um, Rich, um, forgive me, I'm forgetting uh, his name. Rich, yes, yes, 
Yes, Christopher Rich. Good heavens. Yeah. Christopher Rich. Um, he was tremendous. And he, of course, went on to do um, a television show. I remember he was on a show called The Charmings. Where he well, he was The Charmings, and then he was the love interest on the Country Singers show. Oh, oh, on uh, Reba McIntyre? Reba McIntyre. Thanks, guys. Guys, I'm 65. And what happens is the synapses start to fire very oh. slowly. I'm, I'm very lucky when I remember my children's names. I, I believe me, I'm about to turn 50 and the uh, same way. <laughs> All these next 15 years are going to be on the downslope of a roller coaster, my friend. All right. Oh, great. I have so much to look forward to. And and also, the, I think the standout moment from this, this TV movie is when Sam Whipple, as the grown-up Jughead, he yeah. does a hip-hop version of yeah. Sugar Sugar yeah. with Woo! his young son. Yeah. Um, and I, are you in the background somewhere? During I, this? I, be, I believe we all were. Yeah. And we felt shame even then. It <laughs> yeah. was one of those yeah. lame television producer ideas. Oh, we have to be edgy and hip hop is so popular. Let's, mm-hmm. it, it seemed like one of those good ideas on paper that just never should have been done. And I, I think mean, Sam, you know, to his dying day and we lost poor Sam, yeah. um, um, regretted that <laughs> i i gotta give him this though he that man throws himself into he it. sold it he, he sold it it is all he all is like break dancing he is do he is doing this lame thing to the to the best of his the, ability yes and you know he was an odd choice for jughead t- anyway mm-hmm. but he embraced it and made it his own yeah sam, sam and he was a wonderful guy sweet yeah. kind generous Wonderful guy. Yeah, yeah. I I just, I wonder, like, watching that, I I just can't help but think, like, was there anyone on set who was like, oh, yeah, this is working. We are nailing this. This pilot is totally selling. (laughs) Or or, while you're working on it, do you think, like, ooh. No. For me, um, I look at everything. I look at life as something that I know nothing about. So anything that I'm doing could be a surprise. It could be like winning the lottery. You know, I didn't go after SNL. It just found me. So I looked at this going, I'm going to do the best I can. I enjoy the people. They're all doing the best they can. People like Sam Whipple and Chris and Lauren and everyone, Karen, committed to the parts. I said, I don't know what the public likes. I really don't. This just might be, you know, uh, 30-something meets the Archies. Mm-hmm. And this just might be the, the exactly what people are looking for. Uh, it wasn't. <laughs> right. But I look at all of that as potentially. I did a series at the same time with George Hamilton called Spies. It was a tongue-in-cheek version of a James Bond guy and his accountant who becomes his sidekick. It was me. Oh. Good idea. We committed to it. We worked really hard. Great directors. Um, but it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. But I thought. You know, while I'm doing it, I thought, hey, I might be doing this for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. You know, I, 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 it's, it's actually a good way to go through life is thinking that um, I, I'm not so far ahead where I'm thinking about the consequence. I'm just thinking in the moment. It's like buying a lottery ticket, literally. You buy the lottery ticket and you buy it thinking, hey, what if I win? You're not really yeah. thinking about, well, it's a 10 million to one that I won't win. You're, you're thinking in your head, well, I'll bring home 200 million. After taxes, I'm going to start a scholarship. You know, you're thinking about the fantasy. So that's yeah. how I kind of look at everything. That's how I ran for office. I wanted to win, but I enjoyed the process of knocking on doors and giving speeches and developing ideas more than anything. 
I wouldn't say more than winning because winning is the idea. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's just what happens when all the stars line up, and so many of those stars we have nothing to do with. We don't. Con- I'm getting philosophical here, aren't I? No, no, this is great. But, but but there's things that you can't do anything about. All you can control is your commitment to your piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I always look at everything at this, and you guys are great at this. I can tell you right now, you're excellent interviewers. You you're making me feel like a celebrity that's bigger than I would ever that I'm that I'm not. <laughs> but you're but you're treating me that way because you guys are very good. You're very committed to this episode. Oh, well, it's you, a perfect sir. example of how to do it. Oh, thank, thank you know, you. thank you, thank you, sir. Johnny Carson said this. He said, "My job is to make whoever's sitting in that chair the biggest star of the evening. If it's a lady who knits sweaters for cats, my job is to make her the focus, the celebrity. Mm, yeah, and that's brilliant. That's brilliant." Well, and that was what made Carson so great, too, is, I mean, one of the most famous Carson clips I remember is we he had that woman who had unusual potato chips. Yeah, potato chips, yeah. <laughs> and then at one point, she's, like, showing the collection, and I think Ed distracts her for a minute, so she turns away from Johnny, and then Johnny grabs a bag of potato chips, just regular potato chips, and he just takes a bite out of one and she of course hears that crunch and <laughs> flips her head around and he's and he he plays it beautifully he plays it just like oh 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 you thought i was, I was <laughs> right, oh, no, no, no. how of could course. you ever think that and it's no. hilarious no there you guys are younger than i am but yeah. there never was anyone and david letterman would be the first to admit it never yeah. anyone as great at that job as johnny carson and it's yeah. for what you're saying it's like yeah he he lets the guest be the star, but he's listening and totally reactive in the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's very, um, very engaging. Nobody has ever done it better. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but I mean, could he recognize you by penis like David Letterman? That's right. Uh, we can only hope po- yeah. post posthumously. I, I was looking for a pun in there. <laughs> yeah. Post penisly. Forget it. Penis yeah. has been said way too many times on this broadcast. If, if we if we take it like a half hour or so, we could probably come up with something. Yeah. We don't have <laughs> we'll workshop this. Yeah. I, I did. I used to see Johnny Carson. I had a favorite restaurant, which was his favorite restaurant. And even after he oh. retired, you'd see him come in. And he was another one of those. He was not a glad hander walking in the door. He w- kept his eyes to himself on who he was with, kept his mm-hmm. eyes focused on them. He wasn't going into the room to be a celebrity. And you knew, leave him alone. Mm. Yeah. The, just the vibe he put out. Another one of those, Steve Martin. Oh, interesting. Mm. If he wants to be Steve Martin, he's Steve Martin. But if he doesn't, leave him alone. Yeah, I can see, see that. Yeah, I absolutely. See that. Uh, well, um, I mean, we also touched on it. <clears throat> excuse me, earlier in this episode. Um, but uh, I know you. I know Gary. I know you list. You watch the um, the current season of SNL. Like I've heard you yes. on our our you know our friends podcast SNL Network sure. uh, Andy Hoglin who writes for Entertainment Weekly yeah, I just kind of want to get your thoughts on the the new season like what do you think of it do you have any favorite performers on it on this on the cast now uh, do you think there are way too many cast members now like what do you well, what are well those are all, uh, yeah the uh, and all excellent questions you know I thought there were too many cast members when I was there I thought there were too many cast <laughs> really and we were about a third of that because yeah. it was hard to get airtime you know, I really enjoy this cast. I thought that uh, I'm sorry to see Kate go, and I'm sorry to see some people go. Yeah. Um, I think the best cast for my money ever was let's go back two, maybe three years. 
I, I just thought that was a the the wheelhouse of the best. I, I liked the the writing was the sharpest. So many characters could be realized. There was continuing characters that we looked forward to. That was as sharp as as it could ever get. I don't think it's any less so today. But I noticed that there's people that I catch on to, mm. and they don't have a month. A lot of material necessarily every week, and I wish that I had realized at the time it's it's just what you do with what you have. I was obsessed with the fact that I have nothing to do this week. I'm out of the show. I'm not part of it. Well, <laughs> neither are lots of these cast members today. Yeah. You know, they have supporting players, even you know, featured players. We didn't have any featured players, but they have featured players. They don't. They're getting time, and when they do something really good, we notice. Um, right. you know, I'm being very vague here, but I, I, I don't mm-hmm. really feel like singling anybody out. But, you know, they, they, there's a patience to the show now, I think. That's how I feel. Mm. Even yeah. though there are so many cast members, I couldn't even list them all. I forget who's gone and who's stayed and so on. Um, but I enjoy the show. I enjoy the show more for its writing now than I did in the old days. In the old days, I, it was specific performers it, that I looked to. Now, it's not so much a specific performer. I'm really enjoying the context, and I'm enjoying the writing. I'm enjoying the premise more than I ever did before. I think it's more of a writer's medium now than it used to be. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. Yeah, I can see that. Are, do you have like a favorite recurring sketch that they do now? Well, you know, I honestly can't. T- I haven't watched that much of this season. Okay. I, I really haven't. Um, but it, it's recurring sketches are never the ones that I like. When you have a guest star and you're using them, your guest host, and you're using them something specific for them to do, sometimes mm-hmm. it's making fun of their career or whatever, whatever. And the show then is very much live on Saturday night. You know, it's not contingent on any past. It's happening right then and there live. Mm. And usually that's a sketch that just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. A- again, I'm, I'm racking my brain to try to think of specific moments. But the way I watch the show now isn't to sit down and watch the show. It's like when Andy says, hey, what did you think? And then I'll go YouTube the sketches and go, okay, I like that one. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of critique it, you know, ad hoc. Right, right. right. I mean, there was one there's one sketch I remember you really liking, Gary. Um it was when uh, Daniel Kaluuya hosted, and it was like oh, the, yeah. the two uh, parents who were talking to their son who wanted to go into arts, but they wanted him to, you know, be a, a doctor or a lawyer type of thing. Like, uh, but I, I do see that. Like that, I do notice that happening now. Like a lot more uh, slice of life sketches are sort of getting on, and it's well said. And and in my rambling way, that's what I was trying to say. I like the slice of life sketches. I like the ones that you know came from, and sometimes the, the actors are the writers as well, but you know came from the writer's mind as a reflection of something in their life. Mm. Those kinds yeah. of real things that they find a funny vein to do it. Um, and I think they have a cast that can do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if they, if you need an imitation, there's no end to what, who they can imitate. Right. Yeah. No, um, yeah. I mean, Heidi Gardner and, and Chloe oh. Feynman in particular. Oh, oh, you know, okay. You ask, see, I don't like to single anybody out because that means there's 17 people I didn't mention, but <laughs> Chloe is sublime. Yeah. There's the next emerging. There's the next Kate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She's sublime. There's uh, yeah. nothing. 
she can't do. I mean, yeah, you you just look at her and you're just like, well, yeah, she's she's going to go places. And yeah, I mean, and particularly with Kate, unfortunately, leaving the show, I wasn't ready to say goodbye to her, but I see why she did. Um, yeah, that that means that somebody like Chloe or or Heidi or yeah, or Autumn will have more chances to shine. Yeah, know? so. Yeah, I think yeah, like yeah, it happened. Like when like when Beck left, we saw more and more uh, Alex Moffat coming in. Alex Moffat's fantastic, uh, and Mikey uh, Davis. It's a yeah. perfect example. Moffat sort of took Beck's place. And years ago, I think it was Andy or or maybe it was John asked me, um, "Who's your favorite?" And I said Beck Bennett because I related to him the best because he was he serviced the sketch. He he gave his mm-hmm. characters exactly what the sketch needed in the right way. For me, that's always a stand-up. Phil Hartman did the same thing. Mm. In, in oh. a way, it was a different era, but Dan Aykroyd did the same thing. And so yeah. Beck, to me, did exactly the right performance. Not too much, not too little. Um, yeah, he was a stand-up for me. I, I, I adored him. Yeah, he, w- he was so good at playing just oblivious dudes. Yeah. And when play something like Putin, it's it's yeah. in the context of it being him playing yeah. Putin. So the yeah. incongruity made it very funny. Yeah, I mean like I've I've said this over and over again, but Beck in that listeners, go watch Beck in that um Lexus December to Remember pre-tape. Yes. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. It yes. Is, and God, he every it. performance in that is hysterical because it's so good. It's so real. Yeah, yeah. They didn't yeah. make. We were in my era. I called it the cartoon era, because mm. comedy was just a little more heightened. You sort of uh, uh, indicated the jokes and things. At least that's how I sort of interpreted right. it. We were punny. Mm. We were hook driven. You know, catchphrase is what I mean by that. Right. Right. Um, right. And, and now I'm finding humor in general much more realistic. Yeah. yeah, that's true. The, the acting has gotten a lot yeah. more naturalistic, and yeah, I, I totally see that. And, and also, like you know, improv has become much more prominent and much more woven into the fabric. Yes. Yeah. Was. Well, I think that's something that Lauren has always welcomed. Lauren hates laughing. I I, th- I don't <laughs> think he liked when when Jimmy would laugh. You know, in in sketches. Um, but he also knew that the audience loved it, so he didn't right. pull it back any. But he he didn't like that sort of thing, but he did like, and I didn't know Lauren personally, but I knew that he liked when things would fall apart and the actors would have to improvise their way out. You know, you'd yeah. see that happen in the Californians sometimes in oh. some of those older sketches. Um, and the audience loves that. And you know when it's spontaneous. It happened several times when I was there, when an actor would drop a line and I did a sketch called when I was Barney Fife and, um, um, Floyd the barber was played by Eddie Murphy and <laughs> was Otis and he called Floyd the wrong and anyway there was some improvising in there and it, it, it would show up on uh, blooper shows all the time because audiences love that right. yeah I actually saw there there was a, a sketch where it was uh, you and Tim Kazarinski and Joe Piscopo you were the three stooges as self-defense instructors yes uh, I was Larry Piscopo, Piscopo's the pants of Piscopo's yes fall down unexpectedly um and and you see people covering to varying degrees right Uh, yeah I I remember that happening and I know that it was spontaneous Mm -hmm. my instinct is always to just keep playing the scene 
Don't right. break character. Don't, you know, just keep playing the scene. Piscopo was a master clown at mm -hmm. milking a laugh. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, now what, what's your impression of, because you were on the show during the Dick Ebersol era. Yeah. So what is your impression of how, how differently did Dick run the show from how Lorne used to and, and runs the show today? Well, I mean, like I said, it, it, when we first started talking, Lorne set the principles of when you write the show, how it's written, the table read, blocking, mm -hmm. and the structure of the show. Musical act, you know, writing about a half hour too much and then cutting right before air. You know, that template was set by Lorne. Dick right. replicated that word for word for word. But Dick himself was not a funny man. He didn't have an instinct for comedy. We, in fact, called him the George Steinbrenner of comedy. He hired the guns that he needed. You know, Bob Tischler is a, a clever guy, and he let Bob run the, you know, the produce the comedy. But Dick was not instinctively funny the way Lorne is, or, or just no I don't know how to say this exactly, and I'm not trying to throw Dick under the bus. If, no. if it got a, if it got a laugh, Dick knew that it was funny. <laughs> but right. Lauren has an instinct. For example, here's a story that Jim Downey used to tell me. When the bees with Jim Belushi first went on the air, right. you know, in the old days, the bee sketches? Uh -huh. Yeah, the killer bees. Yeah, nobody liked it. Bombed. Yeah. So Lauren said, guess what we're going to do? We're going to do the bees again next week. <laughs> Went over a little better. We're going to do them again next week. And by that time, the audience is going, it's a bee sketch. It's a bee sketch. <laughs> he just knew you stick with something. You develop something. We didn't have that. Right. We didn't have that development thing. Uh, so the show is organically very different under Lorne than it was with Dick. But you got to give Dick credit. He saved it after the Domanian year, which really tanked the show. Yeah. And right. he hired the right guns. He hired Eddie. Yeah. He hired Joe. You know? Right. I mean, I think it also comes from the fact that uh, Lorne came from like a sketch improv background yeah. back in Canada. So he does have like some comedic timing and he can see what's yes. funny. But like, it seems like Dick was more of a... Well, you know, by that's precisely back. that's precisely right. Uh, Lauren can see the big picture. He can see down the, the end of the telescope and wh where it's going. Um, and he's not afraid. He's not afraid of failure. Right. You know, he's not afraid. He's not afraid of political comments. We were very cautious of not being too far one way or the other. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know that that was Dick or the climate of the times or a little bit of both. But you yeah. you you asked what the difference was, and that's that's a pretty significant difference to me. Well, what is you, you? You have a great piece on your blog. Uh, Gary has issues about going to the 40th yeah. anniversary celebration, and you talked about how your, your feelings about like although you were there, you were happy to be there. There was a little bit of a a, a twinge, I guess would be the word, is because you you weren't going to be one of the people right. on stage doing a new sketch or something. And it feels like you, like a bit of an overlooked middle child syndrome yeah. because huh. Lauren doesn't acknowledge those Dick Ebersole years too, too much outside no, of, no. like, say, Eddie Murphy or... You, what you, you can't ignore Eddie Murphy. You can't ignore yeah, Billy Crystal or Marty Short. And you really can't ignore Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who didn't emerge on the show in any way, shape, or form, but her career right. went. So she's, of course, you know, embraced when she goes back to host. Right, um, right. 
look, again, it goes back to the start of our conversation. For, for me, I, I went into theater to move audiences. I went into comedy to move audiences with a little bit of laughter. Mm-hmm. And so when I watch people doing it, what I feel that I do very well up on stage, my peers, right. there was a tinge of, gee, I wish that I had figured out how to be deserving of what they're doing. I wish that I had figured out how to emerge on that show mm. so that I would have been one of those people up there doing weekend update on the 40th anniversary instead of just sitting in the audience. I mean, right. I was happy to be there. I'm proud of the fact that I did the show. My son, who was 16 at the time, was very proud of his father, and that was the biggest deal to me. Yeah. But in my shoes, I'm also going, wow, Mike Myers is up there. I admire him so much, but I can do that too. <laughs> you know, yeah. I wish, you know. That's the only regret that I have is that I wished I'd figured it out. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? I I bet that feeling is shared by most anybody who's done the show, even even people who are like big hits on the show. Yeah, I bet even somebody like Eddie Murphy is like, oh, if I could do the show knowing what I know now. Well, that's very astute. That's very uh, insightful because I think that's the way people are. You know, it's like I always could have done something differently. I just read an interview of John Lennon who said, I wish I could go back and remix and revocalize every single song that I did. Wow. And George Martin said, even Strawberry Fields, which is perfection. And he said, especially Strawberry Fields. Uh-huh. So yeah, everybody has that perspective yeah. that, oh, I could have done it differently. We, we tend to log our mistakes as well as our successes. And maybe our successes are fleeting and we tend to carry the narrative of those things that went wrong. Um, that's a shame. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I think in my life now, because I'm so far removed from it and I have a family and I have a successful business and, you know, I work in politics and things like that. This is a lovely footnote in my life. You know, I'll still go to a bar and people, Hey, that's the guy that was on Saturday Night live, you know, buy him a beer. Yeah. Um, and I'm asked to do a wonderful show like this, where it's really fun to go back and jog these memories. Those that are, you know, I can still remember names. Um, <laughs> It's really enriching and fun for me, and I think that I'm able to give you and your listeners some insight to things, but the regret is gone. You know, there were years where I wish, oh, God, I could have done that. I could have done that. Well, you know what? I did something pretty interesting. It's it's a small book that contains all the cast members of SNL. Yeah. It's like the Hall of Fame, you know, in a way. You know, it's a fairly thin book. And so I get to bask in that um, every bit as much as anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, like the, what you did is no, is no small feat, sir. Like you, I mean, you were on you know, national television entertaining millions of people. Well, yeah. I mean, like it's, it's, it's something and even though heard. I may have small feet, it doesn't uh, mean I have a small penis. Just ask David Letter. Uh, sure. uh, sure. Oh, look at him. Did you see tied that? You see that? Tied it right. See, that's bow. that's put a writer. It, put it on the penis. Put it on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, wow. You are a professional. You're good. You're good. You're very good. Oh, you're good. You. You're good. You. Oh, my, my wife is laughing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, I mean, Gary Kroger, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I mean, we could talk to you for hours. You're an amazing human being and a fantastic uh, conversationalist. Um, we're yeah. very kind. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there anything you want, want to plug? Anything you want to promote? Anything you want to say uh, to our, our lovely well, listeners? Uh, 
you know, to your lovely listeners, I have a podcast, The Gary and Kenny Show, and you can find us on all the podcast uh, platforms and YouTube at The Gary and Kenny Show. Kenny Seisler is my co-host, and he was the director of a show that I did called Comic Strip Live, which was a stand-up comedy show oh, yeah. back in the, early, in the early 90s. Yeah, yeah. And I, watched really I, watched it, I watched it all the time. Sorry. Well, and, and so our podcast is simply to invite our friends on through various aspects of our lives. You know, Brad's been on the show. Tim kazarinski has been on the show. Robin Duke did the show. Piscopo's going to do the show. And it's not just SNL people. It's people that he worked with at MTV and, and mm-hmm. all over the place. Um, major producers we've had on the show. And we talk about the business. And we try to keep it light and have fun with it, but talk about how'd you get your start? How'd you make this happen? Where'd the idea for minions come from? You know, we've had some amazing <laughs> um, people on the show, like Chris D'Alessandro, for example. Um, and Richard Kind, who talks about you know, my life in show business and George Clooney, my best friend. Um, <laughs> so that's what that show's about. But I keep my blog going. Gary has issues. I don't stay as current. It used to be very, very political, but people don't yeah. really read blogs anymore. So it's hard to mm. motivate for it. Yeah, but there's yeah. Gary has issues. I write a column for the paper. I am on the left side of the political fence. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the progressive side of the fence. I don't like to think of this side or the other. I believe in progress. I believe in the yeah. illumination, enlightenment of human beings, the, the, um, the becoming more conscious of, of equality and rights and, and human rights and things like that. You know, I, I work very hard in those directions. So that's what my life is about, and being a dad and a husband. All right. Okay. That is great. I mean, it's it's so great to hear that you're you're doing so well, and that you have such a great perspective on the SNL years and and the things you've done beyond that too. Well, I appreciate that very much, uh, guys. I've enjoyed this tremendously. Not just because we talked about me for all this time. <laughs> you, guys, I mean this sincerely. You're great conversationalists, and and y- you did your homework too. You pulled up some things I hadn't even thought about in a while. I certainly yeah. haven't thought about Reggie in the last <laughs> few years. <laughs> well, look, every, I go through a cycle where about maybe once a year, I'm like, I have to watch Jughead rapping Sugar Sugar. <laughs> Because, I mean, it is just so hilariously yeah. misguided. It's so misguided. It's such a bad idea done so well. And also, also like that poor child actor who's playing yeah. his son. He has to, the poor kid, He he. you can tell he was directed to be like, oh, this is so humiliating for like the first verse. And then he has to literally turn on a dime and, and then join in enthusiastically. Yeah. And he makes that transition in the space of about two seconds. And it is wonderful. <laughs> well, and again, it's really interesting. I, I am very pleased with the fact that I have had a, a, a front row seat to so many things, you know, young Lauren Holly, yeah. Young Chris Rich, Sam Whipple, yeah. um, to be in the early parts of those careers. I think she had just started. Uh, I seem to remember Jim Carrey coming by the set, but you know, it's just all really? of these things. Um, the early days of Seinfeld and watching those things develop. I remember yeah. going to, I went to all the Seinfeld tapings in the beginning before they'd asked me to audition. And I would talk to Larry and I would talk to Julia and the show was about 71 out of 72 shows. And, Maybe Larry said, what, what do you think is wrong? And I said, I don't know. You know, maybe the Midwest just doesn't care about, you know, four kvetching New Yorkers. You know, maybe <laughs> I said the show's brilliant and it's funny, but, you know, I guess it's just not what people want. <laughs> well, may, maybe it's a little like what you were talking about before with the bees where they just 
like yeah. the familiarity had to build up before it really exploded the way it did. You know, people yeah. knew and and commitment to what you're doing. They they knew what they were doing. They weren't shooting in the dark. Everybody said it's a show about nothing. Well, that's an easy little sticker to put on it. It was a show about something. It was about four ridiculous stories weaving together in some brilliant way, in much the same way Curb does. It's the way Larry writes, is he takes four disparate stories, or three or whatever, and then weaves them into this continuity at the end. It's brilliant. And eventually they just stuck with it, and people started to really enjoy the complexity of these journeys about nothing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. Very true. Absolutely. Yeah, so stick with it. Boys and girls, if you're taking notes, believe in yourself. That's right. Stick with it. Believe in yourself, and then one day David Letterman can recognize you by your penis as well. Well, Yeah, I I thought I'd wrapped it up. I think you just wrapped it up right there. I guess we did. All right. So, I mean, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks again to Gary Kroger for coming on and telling us so many great, great stories. And, uh, Thanks uh, for giving us 200 episodes, guys. And I, we... th- thanks for doing it. And anytime you want me back, just give me a call. I, okay. I've only This has only been the tip of the iceberg. Awesome. Oh, oh, oh boy. Much like Gary's penis. Hey. <laughs> it all comes back to the penis. And uh, yeah, guys. Doesn't everything. Oh, yeah. hey now. And uh, guys, that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sticking with us and supporting us through uh, 200 episodes. Uh, you know, keep keep the support coming and you know just thank you so much for listening and you know just giving us a just giving us your support thank you thank you and as always yeah. you can follow us on twitter at snl nerds show you can donate to to our little patreon at nondeckproductive.com you know all our episodes are there and uh, you can follow me on twitter and instagram at darren credible that's d-a-r-i-n credible and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Trumbull Comic. That's T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L and the word comic. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week with uh, something else. We haven't figured this out yet because we're we're pre-taping this one, so we don't know what we're doing in episode 201. We'll find out together. That's right. Uh, but until then... Nerds, nerds out! This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablaoui. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.